Welcome to the podcast, Just Saying. My name is Joe McCormick. I'm your host. In this week's episode, we're going to talk about why there's no room for silence. If you're new to the podcast, I'm really happy that you're here. We are all about trying to help you become an intentional communicator. If you've been here before, welcome back. Please help us spread the word. Um, as the author of the book Brief and Noise, I've made it my mission here to help you in two very specific ways, which is in concise communication and clear thinking, the value of how you communicate and the quality of your quiet to help you think about it. Realizing that it's difficult, it's challenging for anybody to rise to the occasion, to rise to the level of being an elite communicator. Why is the whole point of this podcast? How do you fix that? How do you address it is challenging for most people because the environment we work in and we live in is noisy. There are a lot of things competing for your attention. The fact that you're listening to this right now means that you recognize its difficulty because if it were easy, you'd already be doing it. And you also recognize the importance of it. And I, and I, and I recognize that I'm humbled to lead this conversation with you to help you you know, rise above and make an impact. So in thinking about this particular episode, I'm spending more and more time thinking about the environments that we work in and how challenging and difficult and noisy and distracting they may be. And there was a recent business trip that kind of really, a couple of things happened to me that kind of, I want to share them with you around the room, you know, why there's, there's no room for silence. Um, before I dive into those two anecdotes, which I think are pretty telling on this trip, I just want to say that when you think about the need for quiet, you'll get to a yes pretty quickly. You're like, I need it. I just need it. But I also want you to realize that the urge to talk is strong. Now, some of you might be introverts and think, well, that's not actually not true. I'm talking collectively. Like, we live in a collaborative world where everybody collaborates. And if you're not on board, you're not on board. So the when I'm talking about the urge to talk, I mean the urge to communicate, whether it's sending a Slack message or a text message or getting on a video conference or a Zoom call or being in a meeting and sending another email and having another conversation and a drive-by. And I'm like, that's our business day. That's what it looks like. And these pockets of quiet and silence are rare, if any, during the workday. And one of the things I've been telling people a lot recently is, when you step foot into that environment, it's game on until you leave. And then it's game off, but it's still not off because you're still being communicated to and you're still communicating while you're heading home. And the work day, when that starts and when that ends, that's even being questioned. Like people's autonomy to like, when do I stop? When do I start? Well, if your first thing in the morning is grabbing your phone and the last thing before you go to sleep is checking your phone and you're shooting off another note and whatever, you're just, you're making that moment of noise bigger. And your workday now is going into your personal life. So where is the pocket of silence? Can I just unplug and go off the grid? That's not the point either. But where is the room for silence? So here's, you know, what I want to share with you are sort of two big moments for me. Um, I was on a business trip to Europe, and I took some of that time, my wife and I, to to connect, connecting through cities. So we were, we hit London on the way, and then we hit Rome, 
before we got to our destination over weekends and whatnot. So in doing that, it gave me an opportunity to stop in London. All right, so London's a great city. It's amazing. And I've talked about this um, in previous podcasts, I believe, about Winston Churchill and about this memo that he wrote in 1940, in August of 1940, and it's entitled Brevity. And you can search on the podcast for that. You can also just Google it, just look in Churchill Brevity Memo. And what's really interesting about this memo is, you know, in the context of this whole thing, he's leading a, you know, a war effort, and he writes this memo, and he says to do our jobs, there's way too much paper, way too much information, and it wastes a ton of time. So he starts to push back on all of this information excess, which is fascinating because if it were like that in 1940, imagine what it's like today. And he pushes back and he tells his War Department, brevity is what matters. So he, he just, he says, we can't, we can't do our work with consuming this much information. It's way too much. So he outlines four things to do differently. And really, it was, it's like, you know, back to the future kind of thing where he's talking about what I'm talking about, which is like you can't not only don't have enough time to communicate all the stuff that you need to communicate, it doesn't even make that much sense. And we, it, we can't think clearly. So his payoff of this memo is, yes, it's going to save us time and energy for sure, but it's going to lead to clear thinking. So that's the memo. So I've been fascinated with Churchill and as a side note, recommend to people that they watch two movies and read a book. And the two movies are in order, kind of Dunkirk first, The Darkest Hour second, and then read the book The Splendid and the Vile. And that kind of paints the picture of the environment that Churchill is leading in. I've got, you know, on the side, kind of a high interest in him as a leader and how he led. And, you know, obviously being able to write a memo like that starts to open up insights to him as a leader and, you know, all the challenges that he faced, which were pretty daunting, (laughs) to put it lightly. So I'm in London with my wife, and I've been told by some friends, like, you got to visit the Churchill War Rooms, you know, so it's, you know, downtown London near Buckingham Palace, near Westminster Abbey, sort of right in the, the thick of it all, you find the Churchill War Rooms. So during the war, the War Department went underground, and they basically built this labyrinth of offices, and it's kind of like a bunker. It's, you know, it's underground, and it's where they met, and they they had a map room. Well, that's all been restored, and it's fascinating. So you go into this thing. It's a, bit, a little bit claustrophobic, but but you kind of walk down in this world of, like, where they ate and where they slept and where they planned and while the but London's being bombed, and it's just fascinating. Historically, it's absolutely brilliant because you're putting all these pieces together of all these rooms, and you're walking through history and how this whole thing was being managed and where it was being managed. And you could just imagine, like, he's writing this memo on brevity, like the level of collaboration and information and intelligence that's coming in, and he's got to make decisions, and there's meetings. And, you know, it's just like when you watch those two movies and you read the book, you get a really deeper insight into that environment of how intense it is and how little people slept. And and then I turn a corner, and I see this office, and it's got a little very simple desk lamp and a chair, and above the, the, the door, it just says, quiet, please. And it just made me think, 
in doing a little bit of reading about that, that apparently, in it, and above that, even it said prime minister, and I said quiet please, so it's his office, or an office that he used, but it's a prime minister, quiet please, that he would take naps, an, a one-hour nap, and he would have quiet time in the afternoon, and he would, it was sort of, everybody needed to be quiet for that hour, and it was time to rest and to think, and but he put above the door, quiet please, and he called it out. Like, I can't do my job unless I have this. And he had a room for it and a sign for it. So what we're talking about here is about the need for it. Is nobody's going to deny it, but would you be as bold as to put a sign over your door or on your door handle that said, quiet, please, because you're going to actually use that time to think about the things that you need to do to do what you need to do and how thoughtful, I mean, you, it's very easy, you can imagine for him, just like you, it's very easy to get caught up in the commotion and the cacophony and the energy and the collaboration and just kind of lose your sense of time. And next thing you know, it's 5 o'clock. It's, in his case, he would go to sleep at like 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning and then wake up at 8. You know, and it's just like he led this, this rhythm where you, you, would, you wouldn't be able to have any quiet forever or anything. But to do his job, he needed some quiet and he put a sign over the door. Wow. So that kind of struck me like, wow, he actually put it, said quiet, please, two words, pretty simple, and held people to it. You know, can we do that? That was the first story in the trip. So later on, I ended up in Rome, going to see Rome for a few days. And I'm not going to talk about the whole trip to Rome because it was fascinating, amazing. And it was, you know, I had been there before, but, you know, it was many years ago. And we had the opportunity of getting a tour of the Vatican, so St. Peter's Basilica, but also the Vatican Museums. Well, you know, the centerpiece of this, the Vatican Museums is the Sistine Chapel. So if you know anything about this, Michelangelo was 33 years old. Michelangelo was 33 years old when he was, when he painted this fresco on the ceiling. It took years to do it. And how he did it was just absolutely, and it was the Old Testament and the judgment and the New Testament and creation. And it's just, if you've never seen it, it's just worth looking at online. But it doesn't even do justice to how beautiful, how elaborate this artwork is that's on the ceiling and the kind of side walls of the Sistine Chapel. So when I did, took this tour, I had done this many, many years ago as a, actually like 18 years old. And I recall seeing it for the first time, and I was so saturated with culture and art as an 18-year-old that I kind of blew right through it. And I was kind of like, when's lunch? I mean, I just, I remember distinctly, like, my cup's full, my sponge is completely saturated. I can't absorb another bit of information or art history right now. I just want to, I just want to move through and go on to the next thing. And I, 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 I remember thinking, it's ter terrible for me to say this, but I, I don't even appreciate it. I just need to keep on moving along on the tour. So fast forward, I'm there, and I, we have a tour guide, and she is great. So she sits down, and she's like, all right, so here's the deal. We gotta, I'm going to explain everything before you walk in, and here's what you're looking at. And when you stand, and you're going to be looking at this and the other thing. And, and she really gave us a prep course into, like, what are we looking at and why and the significance, et cetera. And then she said, as we approach the room, She's like, here's the thing. So we're going to walk in the room, and there's quiet in this room. And I'm going to walk in with you, and there's guards and security guards and whatnot. 
and they're going to enforce the quiet. And when they're not quiet, they're going to make everybody know to be quiet, to appreciate this art history, this magnificent achievement. And then she's like, I'll go to the back of the room and you stay as long as you want. And then when you're done, just find me. So I'm like, got it. Game plan's on. We're going to walk into the Sistine Chapel. We've been prepped. We're going to see what we're going to see. We're going to appreciate what we're going to appreciate. We're going to have eyes on this thing, and it's going to be quiet. And I'm like, I'm writing a book on this. Noise. I'm like, all right, this is quiet. We're doing this program. Wow, this is going to be amazing to experience this in a way that everybody around me is going to be. And there's about 100 people in this room. It's pretty crowded. These tours. We get into the room, and it's not quiet. I'm not saying it was loud. But people were talking. And out of 100 people, at any given time, 20 or 30 people are chattering. And then the guards say to be quiet, and then they don't. And then it's like, and then I'm trying to have this moment where my wife and I are are trying to focus on this thing. And I'm back in my mind, I'm thinking, nobody's being quiet. It's silent. And no, I say something to her about them not talking, them talking. And it's like, I'm talking about them talking. And it's like, it's just like, ah. And it just made me think. When can we get people to just stop talking for a moment? I mean, we're in the Sistine Chapel, and they're telling people not to talk. We're supposed to be enjoying this moment, this beautiful achievement, and and studying it and just standing there in awe, and people keep on talking. And to one extent or another, not focusing on it, not appreciating it, missing it, and then moving on. And for me, it became kind of a metaphor of what I'm trying to do with you, which is like this impulse to communicate and to talk is strong and to get a person to stop doing it is really hard. (laughs) So don't kid ourselves. Even in the Sistine Chapel, it's darn near impossible. And in the war rooms of church, he's got to put a sign over the door where it's darn near impossible. So food for thought. What I'm asking you to do is super important. Yes. Is it hard? Absolutely. Okay. So here's what I want you to say. Make room for quiet, not for noise. Just saying.